The sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that. And if you only greet your sisters and brothers, what more are you doing than, doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly parent is perfect. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among and in us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, open all of our hearts, minds, and bodies to receive your word and to be your word for in and for the world you love. Amen. The four Gospels and the Apostle Paul all agree on the greatest command, love. First, love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Now that seems reasonable. That does seem to be at the heart of religion. Love God with everything you've got. Second, and close to the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that one may be a bit more of a challenge because it makes us think, okay, who is our neighbor? How far is this commandment going to stretch me? And then there's that pesky prerequisite of loving ourselves. But okay, love. And then third, The Gospel of Matthew adds to the first to this. Then Jesus said, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, come on now, who does that? Seriously, just as a matter of logic and definitions, your friends are the ones who support you. Your enemies are the ones who oppose you. Our friends are the ones we like and love, and our enemies, well, they stand in opposition to us. They are the ones we oppose, and they are the ones that we often don't even like. I had a friend back in Birmingham who was cantankerous. She owned a diner in my neighborhood, and I spent many Saturday mornings hanging out, talking, and gossiping with her. But she had her hard edges. She was incredibly blunt. Some might call it sassy. Others might call it rude, to paraphrase Lucy Maud Montgomery. She was known in those parts as a person who spoke her mind. I had another friend, Allison, who visited the diner one day and later said to me, Scott, your friend Jerry... Well, she is just mean. And in my most truth-softening southern way, I found myself saying this. Well, I think that Jerry has a warm place in her heart for the people she likes. Well, Allison laughed in my face and she said, Scott Clark, that's what everyone does. Everyone has a warm place in their heart for the people they like. The hard part is having a warm place in your heart for the people you don't like or for the people you don't even know. That's basically what Jesus says here. As he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, it does feel like an impossible command. Love your enemies, really, who does that? Well, it may be an impossible command, but it's one that we have to take seriously. It's right here. 
plain as day in the Sermon on the Mount. I think we need to take it seriously because Matthew's community took it seriously. After their experience of Jesus, they said this teaching to each other over and over again and eventually wrote it down in their gospel. And they were a people who had enemies. Just look at the gospel. The community that wrote Matthew sure enough didn't like the scribes and the Pharisees. There's this completely over-the-top tirade against them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides. You lock the people out of heaven. You cross the sea to make a convert. And here's the best part. And you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. They had some enemies. Scholars tend to agree that throughout the gospel, the writer seems to be arguing against someone. Now, the scholars don't agree as to who that someone is. But it seems likely that the Matthean community has been thrown out or has left another community, and that didn't go well. Again and again, the gospel is arguing who is in and who is out, a right way and a wrong way, sheep and goats. Matthew's community has enemies, and even as they rail against those enemies, they also wrote this down. Remember, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who does that? It's as if they too knew that this sounded impossible, but they also knew in their bones that this command had to be taken seriously somehow. So the purpose of our, for the purpose of our conversation today, I'm going to offer a working definition of enemy just to ground the conversation. An enemy is someone who is opposed to the well-being of another. Now, there's no magic in that definition. We could talk about the forces or powers in the world that are our enemies. Or we could speak of our own internal enemies. But today, we're going to be fairly literal. We're going to talk about people. An enemy is someone, someone who is opposed to the well-being of another. Now, that can manifest in a number of ways. There are those whom we identify as enemies, whether they know it or not, whether they intend it or not. When I was practicing law, I was locked into a battle with an opposing lawyer on a case that lasted for 10 years. He was a more experienced, well-known attorney, and he was aggressive in his advocacy. He pushed his arguments as far as they could go, and then even farther. I was young and energetic, and in response, as a part of my advocacy, I developed, oh, about 57 different ways of creatively saying that he was stretching the case and stretching the facts. Everything from, well, that's just a lie, (laughs) to, let's put Mr. Hitchens on the stand and put him under oath so we can make sure he's telling the truth. I was pretty obnoxious. And our debate often sounded something like this. Ma, 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 ma. Me, 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 me. Ma, 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 ma. Me, 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 me. That was me. <laughs> and then one day we had this conference call and he just exploded. Scott Clark, you are just a caricature of yourself. That, my friends, is some of the best feedback I have ever received. <laughs> you see, for 10 years, he and I danced back and forth across the line between professional adversaries and enemies. 
We had to watch for that point where our aggressive advocacy stance started to become going for the jugular. And we did not always get that right. And it was complicated. Sometimes my thinking he was an enemy was more about my stance toward him than it was about anything he had done that day in court. He could get me so angry and I could get him angry. And yet it was a relationship in which I had a good bit of agency. Agency to name him as enemy or not. Agency to make that relationship something other than enmity. And he had that agency too. There are those we identify as enemy, whether they know it or not, or whether they intend it or not. And then there are also those out there who are opposed to our well-being, whether we know it or not, whether we intend it or not, whether we participated in, participate in it or not. And I didn't have a full appreciation of this type of enemy until I arrived at seminary. I came to seminary at a time when the church officially prohibited the ordination of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people. I arrived hopeful and a bit naive, only to discover that there were folks in the National Presbyterian Church, lots of folks, who actively opposed the ordination of people like me. They opposed the, the full inclusion in the life of the church of people like me. And they didn't just actively oppose it. They were organized to oppose it. They were organized to oppose the ordination of LGBTQ people and to oppose our marriages and to oppose our families. And over the years, as I entered into those debates and into that struggle, I sat in so many Presbyterian rooms and Presbyterian courtrooms where people said the most horrible things about people like me. I will not repeat the things they compared us to or to the ways that they demeaned our relationships and our families. There are those out there who are opposed to our well-being, whether we know it or not and whether we intend it or not. And then as I continued through seminary and learned more about how systemic injustice works, I discovered and I continue to discover how I oppose the well-being of others. Through my participation and complicity in systems of oppression, and not only that, but by my own individual action that is based on my own implicit bias. I've had to face the ways that I am an enemy to others, unintended, intended, either way real, ways that I oppose the well-being of others. So, what we're left with is this intricate web of broken relationships, all the ways that we oppose collectively and individually the well-being of each other, all the ways that we oppose God's desire for the well-being of everyone through our participation in systems of oppression, through our complicity, through our own daily action, through our silence. And all the ways that others do that to us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It feels like an impossible command. Who does that?
Well, you know that question actually has an answer. Romans 8. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ Jesus. And Jesus died and was raised and prays for us and prays for us. And through Christ Jesus, we learn that nothing can separate us from the love of God. No enmity, no power, not life, not death, not the past, not the present, not the future, not height, nor depth, nor depth, nor length, nor breadth. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love for us in Jesus Christ. This is the one who says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As impossible for us as it was for Matthew's community, who does that? Jesus Christ. The one who says this is the one who does this. And then Jesus says, you be perfect like this. (laughs) Now, as if it weren't impossible enough, be perfect like this. But New Testament scholar Ulrich Luz offers some help. He takes that be perfect not as an additional burden, but as an invitation. An invitation to venture out onto the path toward perfection. To venture out toward what seems impossible. To venture out on the path toward Jesus. And so Luz points to the Didache, an early 2nd century teaching text which says... If you can take the entire yoke of the Lord upon yourself, you will be perfect. But if you can't, do what you can. Even with an impossible command, do what you can. And in that spirit, I want to offer up three notions. And I call them notions in recognition that my own work on this is so very incomplete. These notions are the best I can muster, and you might even fairly call them the least we can do. We do what we can. Now, the first notion is actually a notion that comes from Buddhist teaching. I heard a Buddhist teacher, Sharon Salzberg, and scholar Robert Thurman talking about this command, love your enemy, this teaching of Jesus, and offering a Buddhist response. They offered up this. Love your enemy is such a hard teaching. So they point to a midway station. If we can't get all the way to loving our enemy, perhaps we can start with not hating. All the things that stir up inside of us in response to the enemy, all the anger and the violence and the hatred and the aggravation and the obsession, rehearsing again and again all the ways they've wronged us, imagining what they'll do today, how we will retaliate, checking Facebook to see the latest outrageous thing they've done or said, all that stuff that stirs up inside of us, just stop. At the very least, just stop that. As best we can, move to a neutral position, resolve at the very least to coexist. And once we get non-hatred going, maybe then we can move on toward love and compassion. The second notion responds to the second part of the command, pray for those who persecute you. And I will confess that this arises out of my own struggle. My own struggle with praying for our president, someone with whom I deeply disagree. Not far into the start of the administration, I came to a point where I could not find words to pray for him, and I named that as sin. At the very least, I should be able to pray for his humanity. 
And so maybe we start there. Maybe we start by praying for the humanity of the other. God bless this person's humanity. Your own beloved child. Today may they have enough food to eat and shelter. May they experience health and wholeness. May love thrive in their family and in their community. Again, this falls into the category of the least we can do. But maybe we can start there. And then the third notion, the third notion speaks to the further question, how can I pray for the other with authenticity when I am convicted that something vital and important is at stake? Protection of the vulnerable, my own personal safety, release from any manner of oppression. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be just as committed to transgender rights as I am today. And I'm going to go into work and I'm going to work to make sure that the seminary's commitment to non-discrimination against transgender people is as strong as it can be and that we articulate it as loudly and as clearly as we can. I'm going to go in and be a part of a community that affirms the full humanity and the call to service of our transgender students and continues to celebrate the graduation of our first transgender MDiv graduate just this May, the Reverend Jamie Lee Sprague Ballou, who was the first person in her class to be ordained. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to be just as committed to that cause and just as committed to fighting against all the violence that is done against transgender people. So how can I do all that and live faithfully into a commandment that says love your enemy when it involves somebody whom I believe last week did such harm to that community? I will confess again And I'm showing how small I can be. I confess that my instinct is to pray something like, Oh Lord, just help so-and-so from stop being so evil. (laughs) But that's not fair. It's not fair. And it doesn't leave room for my own responsibility. So perhaps we can start here. Maybe we can pray for what is at stake. Maybe we can pray for what is at stake and then how we together can help. God, I pray for an end to transphobia and homophobia and sexism and racism. Please show so-and-so and me how we can help you make it so, individually and together. And that's all I can muster. Those are all the ideas I have. The command still feels nigh on to impossible. That's all I can muster except to say this. In the scripture, in this gospel, in the life of Christ, what we see is this. Jesus loves us toward loving God, toward loving self, toward loving neighbor, and even toward loving our enemy. Now, here I am almost at the end of the sermon, and I haven't mentioned the summer of love. So here's what I have to say about the summer of love, the thing I know best about it. I was born in it. (laughs) Nearly 50 years ago, I was born into the last days of the sweltering summer of 1967. I was born into a world that was in conflict. 
The Cold War was on. The nation was deeply divided over the war in Vietnam. In just a couple of years, my father would go faithfully to serve his country in Vietnam, even as people of conviction took to the streets to oppose this nation's engagement in that war. I was born into a world where the streets were burning in what is also known as that long, hot summer of 1967, as this nation's then nearly 450-year history of racism was being laid bare by protest and by the courage of the civil rights movement. I was born into a nation that would soon elect a president who was corrupt and dishonest and who undermined our democratic institutions and who would be forced out of office. President Nixon. And I was born into a world where a human made from the dust of this planet was about to step foot on the moon as a little watch television show proclaimed every week a mission to boldly go where no one has gone before. At different times during this year, we've heard people say, this is as bad as it's ever been in this world. Maybe you've said it. I think I may have said it once or twice. Well, that's wrong. But more importantly, it's not even the point. The point is that this is the world. This is the world we are called to love. It is ugly, and it is violent, and it is unfair. And it is full of beauty, and of joy, and of life. And we are called not only to love it, But we are called to love this world as Jesus loved this world. We are called to love it whole. That is our calling and our work. It is our work to break down the prison doors so that every captive can go free, no matter how we believe they have wronged us. It is our work to bind up the brokenhearted, no matter what their political party or their religion or their nation. It is our work to help end every type of oppression, to build a world of justice, in freedom and peace. And that's not just our work in the world that struggled in 1967 or in the world that struggles today in the summer of 2017. It is our work that summer and this summer and then fall and winter and spring and summer and fall and winter. It is our work for every day and every season of our life until that great and glorious day when God's perfect reign of peace is established here on earth because we know the promise. With this work, and in that day, the lion will lie down with the lamb. In that day, every power that oppresses, every ism and every phobia that holds us down and holds us back, racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, every power over will be thrown into the sea. In that day, no child will go hungry and everyone will have enough. In that day, people will come from east and west and north and south to feast at the table of God. And at that table, everybody has a place. Every body Black bodies, brown bodies, white bodies. Transgender bodies, cisgender bodies, queer bodies, straight bodies, female bodies, male bodies, bodies of every gender. Everybody will have a place at that table. And in that day, in that day, God will gather us all together in her everlasting embrace. And she will say to us, look around. Look around. Do you see? Do you see now? This is what I meant 
when I said love. 